Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Dr. Jayanta Bhattacharya arrived at Stanford University as a freshman at 18 years old and never left. In addition to his undergraduate degree, Dr. Bhattacharya earned a doctorate from the Stanford Economics Department and an MD from Stanford Medical School. Dr. Bhattacharya is now a professor of health policy at Stanford Medical School and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Jay, welcome. Nice to be here, Peter. What happened and what should have happened? What happened? December 31st, 2019, the World Health Organization announces that it's tracking a cluster of pneumonia cases from an unknown source in Wuhan, China. January 11, 2020, the first novel coronavirus death is reported in China. January 21st, the first American case of COVID is confirmed in Washington State, March. On the advice of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, which includes Dr. Anthony Fauci, states in this country begin to issue stay-at-home orders. Late March and early April, the entire nation has locked down. Schools are closed, economic activity collapses. March 24, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya publishes a piece in the Wall Street Journal, quote, if it's true that the coronavirus would kill millions of people without shelter-in-place orders and quarantines, then the extraordinary measures being carried out in cities and states around the country are surely justified. But there's little evidence to confirm that premise, close quote. The whole nation has shut down and Jay Bhattacharya pipes up and says, hey, fellas, explain yourself, Jay. Sure. Uh, so I actually have to go back a, a, a few years from that. A few years? Yeah. In, in 2009, I had done some research during the H1N1 flu epidemic. Uh, also uh, originated in Asia? It's, right? it's, it's, I mean, it, it, it's unclear exactly. Oh, I yeah, see. But, right. but in any case, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it is an epidemic that's hitting the United States. and uh, Everyone's worried about how, what the death rate is from it. I, I did, did some research on the spread of the disease, but I'd been reading the literature on how deadly it was. So the first reports for H1N1 were, were really high, 4%, 5% mortality. And I noticed in the literature, there were a whole series of seroprevalence studies, studies essentially of antibodies. And what they found was that for every case of H1N1, there were 50, 100 people that had it that didn't, that they didn't identify, the public health hadn't identified. Okay, so let's just, I, just, you know me, Jay, you know I'm very slow and you have to go through this carefully for me to get it all. For every case, meaning every case that turns up at a hospital, every case that's identified and counted because that person gets sick, right. there are some large number of asymptomatic cases where people have been infected, produced antibodies, and don't even know it. Is yeah. that correct? That's the general That's idea? That's the general idea, although right. they, they, not necessarily asymptomatic. They might have had symptoms. They just never showed up. They weren't severe. They never got shown. counted. They don't, yeah. turn, they don't turn themselves in at the doctor's office or the hospital. Right. So H1N1 right. goes from 5% uh, mortality, 4% mortality, which is what the World Health Organization was, was saying at the time, to 0.01% uh, mortality on that order disease. Once studies had been done to see the actual number of people who'd been infected. Correct. Okay. So it, it, it was on the top of my mind when I saw the World Health Organization in, two, uh, in 2020 say that we have a 3% mortality rate. 
they were very cagey about what they meant, but I knew what they meant. They meant that three out of 100 people that had been identified with COVID died from it. They were looking at Chinese data. They were looking at Italian data. Uh, and uh, the first thought I had was, well, maybe this is like h one It's a respiratory disease, uh, respiratory virus. It spreads very, very easily, obviously. Uh, it seems likely that many more people have had it than have been identified. Our testing resources weren't all that good at the time. Um, so that was, that was what motivated me in that piece was we don't know the mortality rate because we don't know how many people actually have been infected. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know the denominator. And then you, at some point in these early weeks, you and a couple of colleagues here at Stanford, as I recall, correct me on this because I'm going from memory, conducted what was one of the earliest or perhaps the first seroprevalence study in this country. Is that correct? Yeah, it's very, one of the very first, yes. And you learned? Uh, so we did two, actually. We did one in Los Angeles County, and we did one in Santa Clara County, which is where Stanford is. Um, we learned that uh, in both L.A. County and Santa Clara County, there were 40 or 50 infections per case identified. 40 or 50 per case identified. So it was H1N1 all over again. Yeah, it's, uh, it's more deadly than H1N1. Right. No, so instead of something like uh, 0.01, 0.02% fatality, infection fatality rate, it's, it's, uh, the numbers we got were that it was 0.2%, so two out of 1,000 mortality rate. But it was parallel to the H1N1 case in the following sense. The World Health Organization said it was maybe a, maybe a whole order of magnitude more deadly than your study suggested. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. And your study, this is, so you first raise your head above the parapet, so to speak, in that piece in the Wall Street Journal on March 24, and you had done your study by then, or you were, no. you were writing on suspicions? No, we, we, it was a hypothesis. That, right. that, that article was putting forward hypothesis, as basically that it might be lower than we're seeing. We need to do the study to check. Actually, that, that piece led to a very large number of people contacting me and my colleagues, offering resources to help us do the study. I see. And so the study you conduct, well, we'll come to this in a moment, but one of the things that just I find baffling about this, Jay, you're going to have to help me through this in the whole conversation, is that we have this gigantic, heavily funded, billions upon billions of dollars, public health establishment in this country. The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, sits right up at the top of it. And then, of course, there's an international organization, World Health Organization, and it's my friend, Jay, and a couple of his buds out here in Stanford who do what seems the obvious thing to do, which is to ask the question and then test just how deadly this thing is. So on the basis of your test, again, I'm a layman. Correct me. You discover, one, it's not nearly as deadly as the public health authorities are at that point letting on. Two, it's already everywhere. Yeah. It's already everything. Well, it wasn't quite ever. So the, the prevalence, right. the Again, prevalence then was, it was about, uh, in L.A. County, it was 4%, and in Santa Clara County, it was about 3%, 2.8% in, in Santa Clara County. But still many thousands of people. Right. Many Way too late for trace and tests. That's or, the key point, Peter. Right. That Go is ahead. exactly the key point. So, um, I mean, the mortality rate is, is important, but the key point is the, the strategy used to control the disease. Up to that point, the strategy, the idea was that if we could find all of the cases of it, test enough, isolate the people that have it so they don't pass the disease on, then we'll suppress the disease down to zero. 
th that worked, I think, with SARS-1. Uh, it worked with Ebola. It works with, has worked in the past with other diseases. It's not a crazy idea. No, it's not a crazy idea. Uh, the, the problem is that if you have a situation in mid-April 2020 where 3%, 4% of, of large metro centers have, have had evidence of the disease already, you know the disease is very, very infectious, that's a strategy that cannot work. It's at, at, at that point, what, what folks should have realized, including folks like Fauci and the CDC, should have realized is that a strategy to stop the disease from spreading down to zero was not possible. Over a year ago. Yeah. All right. I continue this timeline. October 4th, 2020, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of public medicine at Stanford, I'm repeating your credential for a reason, joins Dr. Martin Kuldorf, an epidemiologist at Harvard, and Dr. Sunitra Gupta, an epidemiologist at Oxford, in issuing the Great Barrington Declaration, which you named after the town in Massachusetts, in which the three of you drafted the document. It happens to be called Great Barrington. You weren't saying the declaration is great, well, although there are those who think it probably <laughs> was. Quote, I'm quoting from the declaration. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we, that is the three of you, have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies. That is to say, of shutting down our countries, the United States and Sunita Gupta's in the United Kingdom. We have grave concerns and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Close quote. The three of you recommend an alternative. You call it focused protection. Explain focused protection. Sure. So um, the, the, the main idea behind it, there's two main ideas. One, one is that they, there's a huge gradient in the risk. It's not that everyone is equally at risk from this disease. If you're older, you're much more likely to die upon infection than if you're younger. I mean, thank God, ch for children are relatively well protected against this disease just by the nature of their, their immune response to it. Do we know why? Is this uh, unusual among such diseases, I mean, it, among viruses, or was it unique to this virus? It, they're still working out why. I mean, right. there's something about But we know yeah. the fact. Yeah, but, it, but we knew that early, right? Mm. So you look at the Chinese data, the Italian data, it was older people that were dying from this disease. And, uh, and the seroprevalence disease actually can you, gave us a number. I'm, so can you quantify? So how much more likely is a 75 or 85-year-old to die of the disease than a 5-year-old? So uh, it's, it's more like a, a 1,000, 2,000 full increase in the risk for the 80-year-old than the 5-year-old. Okay. Huge, uh, huge, I mean, just, just huge to, difference, just, dramatic difference. Just to give you some sense of this, uh, the, there's now a whole bunch of these seroprevalence studies that have been done that, that, re that replicate from around the world what we found. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the typical finding in these seroprevalence studies is that for people that are under the age of 70, there's a 0.05 percent mortality risk. So 99.95 percent survival after infection for right. people under 70. For people over 70, it's 5 percent mortality. So 95 percent mortality, 95 percent survival. A huge difference. Um, it, now, and that, uh, it's, it's, it essentially changes smoothly with age. So roughly speaking, I, I'm 53. My infection fatality rate from these studies is something like 0.2%, 99.8% survival if I get infected. Mm -hmm. uh, that's before the vaccine. Mm -hmm. uh, every seven years of age, below and above, you double it. 
I see. All so, right. All right. So the, the gradient is like this. It's, it's very, very steep. steep. Yeah, it's very right. steep. All right. Sorry, back to the great barrier. Back to focus protection. Right. So that's one. So the, so the obvious thing is we know who's vulnerable. Older people, people with certain chronic conditions, move heaven and earth to protect them. Right. So uh, we, we outlined a whole bunch of ideas for this. We can talk about some of these ideas in a bit if you want. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that the lockdown harms are devastating. A hundred million people have been thrown into poverty worldwide as a consequence of the economic harms caused by lockdown. People skipped cancer treatments, people skipped heart attack treatments, people skipped uh, uh, diabetes management care. The psychi psychological harm is, is on a scale, like in June of 2020, one in four young adults reported to the CDC that they had con seriously considered suicide in the United States. Uh, so th the, the harm, the, the public health harm of these lockdowns, I, I just can't overstress how harmful these lockdowns were to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the population at large from a public health point of view. Not, forget about the economics, just, just in terms of health outcomes. There was a study that suggested, we closed schools down, right? Yes. Uh, the, a study done, published in, in, a, in a JAMA Pediatrics, found that- JAMA is the Journal of the- American Medical Association. Thank you. So, <clears throat> One of the three or four most prestigious medical journals in this country, correct? Yeah. All right. For JAMA Pediatrics, um, that, that estimated how just closing the schools for a, a couple of months in May, April and May, would, 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 what effect would it have on the lives of these children? Because it turns out that closing schools down, it, you, you get learning loss that then echoes throughout your, a kid's entire life. They lead shorter poorer, less healthy lives. So the estimate was five and a half million life years lost just from that school. Five and a half million Closed life down years. in the previous spring that yeah. had already happened. All right, so focus protection says, move heaven and earth to protect the older and do what with everybody else? Don't get, end the lockdown because the lockdown is causing devastating harm for them. Old people should be protected. Everybody else should go about the their business. lives. Yes. All right. You issue the Great Barrington Declaration again on October 4th, 2020. October 13th, British Secretary of State for Health, Matt Hancock, speaking in the House of Commons. The Great Barrington Declaration is underpinned by two central claims and both are emphatically false. First, it says that if enough people get COVID, we will reach herd immunity. That is not true. Many infectious diseases never reach herd immunity, such as measles, malaria, AIDS, and flu. And with increasing evidence of reinfection, he's talking about COVID, we should have no confidence that we would ever reach herd immunity to COVID, even if everyone caught it. The second central claim is that we can segregate the old and vulnerable on our way to herd immunity. That simply is not possible." Close quote. Okay, he makes two extremely serious charges against you and and you and your colleagues, Martin Kuld of, of Harvard and Sunita Gupta of Oxford responded, how? Well, first of all, he doesn't understand what herd immunity means, right? So herd immunity- that Actually, take a moment and really lean into herd immunity because that is a term that even now is getting used again and again and again. And I confess, I don't quite know what, it seems to be mean different things as different people use it. Yeah, so I think he's using it as a synonym for zero COVID. COVID's gone away because enough people are infected. COVID is a coronavirus. The other coronaviruses that are in common circulation in human populations produce colds. And uh, they, they're controlled by herd immunity. 
they're not always increasing exponentially so that everyone gets it. What happens is they rise and fall with the season. Uh, enough people get it, and uh, what herd immunity means is it, when one person has the infection, they spread it to one or fewer additional people. So you don't get an exponential growth. You, right. You, get, you see <coughs> declining cases, for instance. All right. So when a population achieves herd immunity, it is not immune, entirely immune to said infection. It simply experiences that infection in a relatively minor, con I want, don't want to say control, but in, in a relatively minor way. There is an exponential growth. That's all it means. Is that correct? Yeah, it just means that there's not a growth in the number of cases. A new person gets it and they pass it on to one or fewer additional people. So whenever the case counts are coming down, we're in herd immunity in some technical sense. Um, the, the, uh, since this is seasonal, when it's in season, the, the number of people that need to have immunity to this needs to be very high because it passes much more easily. Right. When it's out of season, you can have relatively few people with immunity and you won't see it growing. Um, so herd immunity is not a synonym for zero COVID. I think Hancock, I think that, that's the mistake he made there. Um, the, the other thing about, about herd immunity uh, with, these disease, with this disease is uh, it, it was clear in October of that, of that year, of 2020, and even more clear now, that if you are infected, you actually gain substantial protection against reinfection. So there was a study that was just, uh, just released actually recently, uh, but it verifies a whole long line of studies. At one year, uh, this is out of Italy, at one year after infection, 0.3% are reinfected. So you're, you're infected, you recover from COVID, and within, uh, within the context of the full year, three out of 1,000 get reinfected. And almost always, it, it, it's less severe than the first time because your body still remembers how to fight it off. And that's true of viruses in general, isn't it? That subsequent infections tend to be less severe? I mean, it's true of the coronavirus. I mean, HIV is a different, I mean, there's, th okay. there's some there's some The 1918 here. flu. Yeah. Each time it returned, it returned with less force. Is that roughly correct? I mean, the, I... the flu is a little more complicated. Okay, it, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it, I'm uh... sorry, I'm sorry. That's, that's the layman going off because I don't know yeah, enough no, to stay no within the, the rails here. Okay, so, so Matt Hancock, the British Secretary of State for Health, who incidentally was forced to resign because he was caught violating the lockdown rules in Britain. He's now the former Secretary of State for Health. He says, it says that if enough people get COVID, we will reach herd immunity. That many infectious diseases never reach herd immunity. So the, what's in the back of his mind is, it is our job as the government of Britain to free our country altogether of COVID. And you as a professional medical man say, excuse me, Secretary Hancock, that will never happen. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. All right. Now, what about his second claim I'll read it again. The second central claim of you, of the Great Barrington Declaration, is that we can segregate the old and vulnerable on our way to herd immunity. That is simply not possible, close quote. You can't protect them, he says. So this is one of those points that I'm still baffled by. The, the, um, the public health community that I know does, has all kinds of creative ideas of how to help people in a population be protected against disease. They're very creative generally in thinking of ways to do focus protection for many, many diseases and conditions. 
the reaction, Matt Hancock is one, one example of it, of the much, many people in the, in the public health community was to just to throw up their hands and say, we can't do it. The, uh, now, what, what, what they're saying, and what they had in the back of their heads, and you can see it from the policy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was that if we lock down, we will protect the old, we will protect the vulnerable, just by the fact that we've stopped the disease from spreading. Right. That's turned out to be catastrophically false. 80% of the deaths in the United States are people over, seven, or over 60. 80% of the deaths are people over 60. Uh, we did not protect the vulnerable because we, we didn't even attempt to protect the vulnerable. That wasn't, that wasn't, we, uh, just to give you some, some sense of how backward it was, we sent people in the early days of the epidemic that were infected with COVID back into COVID, to nursing homes who then infected a large number of vulnerable people. Instead of realizing who the vulnerable were and, and seeking to protect them, you know, that, was the, that was the scarce resource. We thought hospital beds were the scarce resource. Well, most parts of the country in March, April 2020 went empty, hospital beds. Right. Um, there are other strategies we could use. So we could have, uh, we suggested for instance, like one, one uh, I, I, uh, was we have older people living alone at home. We said, okay, you, you can go to grocery stores and we'll give you an hour. But then they're now in community with a whole bunch of other people, even though they're older, potentially passing the disease on. Right. We use DoorDash to, to make sure that people in the laptop class could get food. You mean under the lockdown? Yeah. Right. Instead, right. we could have just, we could have offered free DoorDash to, to older people. Like this, I mean, it would depend on the community and the, the living circumstances. But, but so, so, okay, it would be a so, local thing, right? So, so Matt Hancock says, oh, we can't, we can't isolate the, the vulnerable. We really can't isolate the old. And then tell me if this layman's correct, response is correct. I don't know what the lockdown caused in the United Kingdom, but it was even more severe than most places here. And in this country, it cost trillions of dollars. And the government spent tens of billions printing money and sending it to people who, for a fraction of that cost, surely it would not have been beyond the ken of man to say, everybody 75 and older, you should shelter at home. We're going to deliver food to you. We'll, 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 we'll airdrop masks or whatever. Other, and yeah, they I mean, never even tried. I mean, you could have, that correct? So that, that's correct. I mean, they, we could have just offered those kinds of, of things. So, for instance, we used hotel rooms to house uh, young homeless people. Right. Uh, we could have offered it to, to, like, you know, many people in L.A. County, for instance, that I know about. Uh, they, there's multi-generational homes. Grandma living with, with grandson. Right. Grandson goes out, says, oh, I might have been exposed. We'll offer the hotel room temporarily to the grandma until the grandma. federal government could have booked every room in every Marriott hotel the, the for six time. months right. at a fraction of the cost that we imposed on ourselves with this lockdown. Yeah. So, so the Matt Hancock argument is we can't lock down the old exposed vulnerable people, but we can lock down the entire society. It makes yeah. no sense. Yeah. Am I missing something? No, you're not missing anything. It was a failure of imagination on the part of public health. Okay. And it would be a local thing, right? Every single local community has different needs for its elderly. So you'd have to do different, different things in right. different communities. So local public health would have to play a role. Instead, the, the, the public health agencies uh, in developed countries, and certainly U.S. and the U.K., said only lockdown will help. And they okay. Didn't. Again, the, you issue the Great Barrington Declaration on October 4th, 2020. Matt Hancock speaks on October 13th. On October 15th, Dr. Anthony Fauci is asked about the Great Barrington Declaration in a call with reporters. I'm quoting his response. 
quote. Got to get this one word for word. Dr. Fauci, I'll tell you exactly how I feel about that. If you let infections rip, as it were, and say, let everybody get infected that's going to be able to get infected, and then we'll have herd immunity, quite frankly, that is nonsense. And anybody who knows anything about epidemiology will tell you that that is nonsense and very dangerous, close quote. Okay, I will let you address the substance of the argument, but this layman cannot avoid observing that Dr. Fauci gave the back of his hand to the three of you who signed the Great, De Great Barrington Declaration. It turns out that your own specialty is not epidemiology. But Martin Kulldorff is an epidemiologist at Harvard, and Sunitra Gupta is an epidemiologist at Oxford. They're both published in journal after, I mean, they, it doesn't even make no, sense Peter, what he's Peter, saying. I've been, I've been published in epidemiology for 20 years. Oh, you, okay, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So, all right. So, so he gives you the back of his hand, ask anybody who knows anything about epidemiology, and he'll so, say those three people are crazy. Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, you're not crazy. Yeah, and also tens of thousands of, of other scientists signed on, doctors yes. signed on. Um, I, the, the substance of it is, is, uh, is a piece of propaganda by Fauci. He said, in that, in that quote you read, that we were calling for the virus to rip through society. But we've just been talking about what we actually proposed. We were arguing for focused protection yes. of, of the vulnerable. Uh, he wanted to, in, in order to justify the strategy that he's adopted, which is lockdowns, Yes. he wanted to contrast this with something he would call a herd immunity strategy, a let it rip strategy. Right. The effect of the lockdowns have been essentially to let it drip. We have let the virus drip through all of society, just extended the time without protecting the vulnerable. Okay, so hold on. Let me grasp this. If I, let, me, let me make sure I've got this right. The difference between the Great Barrington Declaration and Fauci's position, aside from the massive costs that Fauci's position imposed, is simply a matter of speed. That is to say, the virus is going to spread. If we lock down, it'll spread a little bit more slowly maybe quite a lot more slowly, but, that, but it will still spread. Is that correct? Yeah, I don't actually think it spread all that much more slowly. What it did it, is it protected a certain class of people, the people who could afford to lock down, uh, the people who didn't lose their jobs because they could do their job from home during lockdown. It protected them. So I'll, I'll just give you a statistic from mm -hmm. L.A. County. Mm -hmm. uh, the age-adjusted death rate from COVID in L.A. County for the, 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 the set of, uh, of, of, uh, of locations that are in the bottom 10% per, of, uh, of poverty. I'll use the layman's term, for poor neighborhoods. For, well, for, 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 for rich neighborhoods, there is one-third the death rate from COVID than in the poor neighborhoods in LA County. One-third the death. So essentially, the policy that Dr. Fauci espoused said, look, if you're, if you're uh, and we call it an essential worker, it's like weird Aurelian term, um, if you're essential and 60, well, go out and work. It doesn't matter. You have to go out and earn a living. If you're 25 and uh, non-essential, and you can, you're not going to lose your job because you can do it from home, we're going to protect you. Hold on. I want... So the effect of the lockdown, again, if I'm being melodramatic as I try to grab, as I try to understand this in layman's terms, the effect of the lockdown, here's what we know about Los Angeles. If you lived in Beverly Hills or Bel Air or up in Pacific Palisades, 
you were fine. Yeah. But if you lived in Watts or in a barrio somewhere, somebody in your family got sick. Yeah, you were exposed. You were exposed. Yeah, because your you grandmother you were, you were got sick. Because someone, or you, you, you had to work through the whole epidemic. Um, you were essential. Okay. okay. Um, but that that is the effect of what of what he proposed. It was a, it was almost a reverse focus protection, right? Instead of protecting the vulnerable, the people we know to be vulnerable, older populations, we we exposed the vulnerable and then and protected the the, the relatively well-to-do young. Okay. The costs of the lockdown. Um, you've, you've gone into the costs a, a little bit. You've mentioned the costs. Here we are taping this program in October 2021. What do we know? If I, I'd, I'd like, if I may, to break it down to what we know about the costs that the lockdown has imposed in this country and then elsewhere in the world. What do we know about the costs of the lockdown in this country? What are the figures that have come in? I mean, I think this is one of those things where it's difficult to, to, to say in, in a short number of words because the scope of it is so devastating. Uh, so like we've already talked about children, the lost schooling for children, the lost opportunities for children. That, that will last, the effects of that will last their life, their entire life. We'll be counting those costs for a very long time. Um, the psychological harms that I mentioned, there have been a, a vast increase in Opioid deaths. A lot. Remember the, the during the, the 2008 Great Recession. Yes. There was a, there was a deaths of despair. Yes. Well, those are back, but magnified. Uh, there there are alcoholism, uh, opioid abuse, domestic violence. Yeah. Let me give you a very small one uh, against on children. The reports of child abuse declined during the lo the 2020 during mm -hmm. the lockdown. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that children weren't being abused. That, that is that child abuse tends to get picked up at school. So what we had was a huge increase, unmeasured, in child abuse that was not dealt with properly by authorities. Domestic abuse is a very similar kind of, kind of thing. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the scope of the lockdown has touched every, every single American. Everyone understands, even if they were in favor of it, that, that, that something went deeply wrong. The rest of the world. Here's a presentation. I'm going to quote you from a presentation you de delivered last spring at an event sponsored by Hillsdale College. In the last 20 years, says Dr. Bhattacharya, we've lifted a billion people worldwide out of poverty. This year, the lockdown year, this year we're reversing that progress and an estimated 130 million people will starve. Another result of the lockdowns is that people have stopped bringing their children in for immunizations against diseases like diphtheria, whooping cough, and polio. 80 million children worldwide are now at risk of these diseases." Close quote. I want you to tell me you were exaggerating for dramatic effect. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wasn't. 100 million, 100 million people have been thrown into poverty. Uh, tens of millions of people have been thrown into starvation, like well, you know, dire food insecurity as a consequence of the lockdowns worldwide, especially in Africa. So meaning that when the Western world, which is the rich world, contracts its economy, when we shut down our economy, you're okay if you live in Pacific Palisades, but if you live in somewhere in Africa where you're on a subsist, when the world economy shrinks, the very poor and the very poor tend to live in on other continents are exposed in a in the in the rudest way. Their lives themselves become at risk. I mean, we spent the last two decades or, or more 
developing systems of trade and globalization that effectively were promises to poor countries that changed their economies to rely on these systems. And overnight, we violated those promises. So it's not surprising that the, 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 the greatest harms to the lockdowns have happened in poor countries around the world. Um, I mean, I'll just give you another statistic about children. Uh, it was in March of this past year, the UN estimated, put out reports saying that 250, nearly 250,000 uh, children had died of starvation as a consequence of the economic dislocation from lockdowns in South Asia alone. The harm to children is incalculable from this. Hmm. Why, 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 why? Why the public health establishment got it wrong? I will now try to defend them. Good luck. Okay, well, <laughs> the precautionary principle, the broad principle, you could almost call it a philosophy, that when we're dealing with uncertainty, as indeed we were, particularly in the first, say, six or seven months, we should always err on the side of caution. And public health officials may have gotten it wrong. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps we should have pursued focused protection and left the, the rest of the economy open. But they did so on reasonable and even admirable grounds. Locking down was the safest thing to do. Jay? Yeah, so uh, the thing about the precautionary principle is that when you apply it, you cannot apply it asymmetrically. So let me put what it, tell you what I mean by that. If you have a lockdown, if you have a, if you have a disease and you don't know its characteristics, you don't know its d death rate, you don't know who it, who it harms, uh, the precautionary principle says, well, assume the worst about it. Right, right, right. Right? So, th so that you then have a sufficient impetus to, to take action. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the actions you take, the precautionary principle doesn't say, assume the best about them. Assume the worst of the disease and the best of your actions. That is not what the precautionary principle says. All right. So it was, it was a catastrophic misapplication of the precautionary principle if, you're gonna, if people are reasoning that way. They were utterly blind. I think Dr. Fauci is like most of all on this, utterly blind to the, to the harms of the lockdown. The, in fact, I saw there was, a, there was a back and forth with Rand Paul and, and, and Fauci. At Senator Paul point. and Dr. Fauci, right. Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. And he, uh, it was striking to me, it was early, relatively early in the epidemic, and uh, Rand Paul, Senator Paul, asked Dr. Fauci about, well, what about these other harms? And he said, well, that's not my job, in effect. Well, whose job is it, right? It, it, uh, if you are going to make policy decisions like this, you cannot assume that the things you're doing are automatically effective just because there's uncertainty about the effectiveness of it. You cannot assume that it has no harm. That's not part of the, the precautionary principle. That, that's, that is essentially uh, a, a public health malpractice to, to assume that the thing you're doing has no harm, that the thing, that's, that the thing you're guarding against has a, a enormous harm. Mm -hmm. it, you end up in a situation where you take actions that end up with the, with the kinds of consequences we're talking about. Without actually stopping the disease, you have catastrophic harm to the population at large from, from the lockdowns. Okay, so let me attempt another defense of the public health officials. And the, the, the defense is science proceeds by dissent and experimentation and argumentation all should take place openly, but there are moments when public health 
in effect shuts down the scientific process, in effect honestly shuts down free speech because lives are at stake. If, you're, if you have decided, as the public health officials did decide, that a lockdown is necessary to save lives, again, we impute to them the highest motives, then, then the only way to affect the lockdown is to affect it. And that means anybody who disagrees just has to pipe down for a while. And that is why Dr. Fauci felt free, perhaps felt even it was his duty to suggest that you and Martin Koldorf and Sunitra Gupta were, just to give you the back of his hand, because you were threatening, as he saw it, you were threatening a lockdown which was intended to protect lives. And for a moment, we not only have to suspend our usual activities, but we have to suspend our usual freedom of speech. We have to suspend our freedom as scientists to dissent, to argue, to suggest alternatives. All that gets locked down too, because we're trying to save lives. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a little bit of force to your argument, but only a little bit, all right? So uh, in public health, there is a norm of unanimity of messaging, right? So Right, okay. Right, so I, I, if I tell you smoking... So I was on to something, all right. Well, let's not go too far. I mean, we could, <laughs> um, I, the, the, if, if I tell you smoking is good for you, well, I'm doing you a huge disservice. I'm, I'm basically misrepresenting a, an enormous literature that documents that smoking is terrible for you. Right. And so a, 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 someone who speaks up in, in public health and says, oh, smoking is good for you, has, has, has violated a real norm in public health. Uh, and the unanimity of messaging is important because the, the, the message shouldn't be confused. In public health, you actually have limited opportunity to tell the public things. Right. Because the, the attention of the public naturally isn't on public health people. It shouldn't be. It should be on their own lives. Right. Um, and so if I tell you that the smoking is good for you, I've, I've really violated a, 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 like a fundamental norm in public health. There's something very, very irresponsible. Um, that norm was applied to COVID. Now, but the ethical basis for that norm is that the scientific process has worked itself through and reached a mature stage so that the, the, nor, the thing on which the norm is being enforced. There's no serious doubt about it. Exactly. Uh, in this case, we had a new virus. We had enormous uncertainty about its, uh, you know, we talked about it from the beginning, about, about death rate, who's most at risk, uh, what, how it spreads what interventions work and what don't work. Enormous fights going on within the scientific community or certainly uncertainty within the scientific community around this. And before it was resolved, people like Dr. Fauci jumped to this public health norm. All right, all right. That also explains why we see him on the air all the time even now. He feels it's his responsibility to, to, to convey this message, but it's all mistaken. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, and it's actually had very pernicious effects. So, so it, it, in effect, shut down the scientific debate. Right? Right. So one of the things that happened with the Great Barrington Declaration is that after we released it, I've lost track of how many scientists have written to me saying they've silenced themselves. I'm with you, but don't tell anybody. Yes. That kind of thing. And some people actually By the way, lost we should, their jobs. I, we should know the number of scientists, medical scientists, and public health professionals, physicians and nurses, who have now signed the Great Barrington Declaration approaches 60,000. Yes. All right. 
and uh, in addition to which there's some unknown numbers saying I'm with you but I do not dare putting yeah. my name forward I mean it, people lost their jobs for signing it right okay those are the public health officials how could the economists have got this all wrong from an article that you co-authored with Mikko Pakalin called the silence of the economists quote I'm quoting you Jay economists who study and write about these phenomena that is phenomena such as the cost of lockdown economists had a special responsibility to raise the alarm economists had one job notice the costs the profession failed why I think um, I mean, you can you can talk about personal reasons right so most economists including me are part of the laptop class we don't lose our jobs when the lockdown happens um, and we're human so we're, we might be scared of the disease itself. We think, okay, what's good for me is good for good for everybody else. I mean, I think there's some some personal some some aspects of the personal aspects around this um, that, that are there. Um, the reasons that the professional econ some professional economists gave included things like, well, because people were so scared, they would have locked down anyway, right? You don't have to formally say you can't leave home. Everyone would just automatically stay at home because they're so scared of getting the disease. So by the reasoning of economists. They'd say, well, the, that means the lockdown itself didn't have any effect because people already would have stayed at home in, in any case. The formal legal mandate had no effect because people would have done the same thing on their own. Yeah. Okay. To, to which I say that's insane. Right? I would have sent my kids to school for eight, the last 18 months happily because of the, the risk to them from not going to school is so much more than the, the, the risk to them from COVID. Um, many, many people worked during the epidemic, the, the essential essential class of workers worked in the epidemic. Uh, it's not true that people would, would have voluntarily stayed at home for 18 months or 19 months or whatever because of the fear of the virus. It's just, it's just, that's just false. Uh, the, the formal lockdowns had enormous consequences. Uh, and to, to pretend otherwise is, is, is not right. The other thing I'd say is that uh, the fear of the disease itself was part of the public health strategy. It was uh, essentially a inducement of panic so that if anyone said anything that suggests that, well, for children, maybe the disease is not so harmful, you get jumped on. The New York Times spent all of last summer trying to panic the parents over, the over, over sending the children back to school, for instance. Uh, the panic was we part all, of the we, we all experience this in our own lives. If your mask slips down, people give you the evil eye or worse, yeah. the same kind of People can only behave that way toward each other because they're scared, right? Yeah, and, 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 the, and the, the fear is part of the public health. I mean, I don't have anything else to say it. I'm not going to say polite. Not, I mean, I try to think of a more polite way to say it, but it was essentially a propaganda campaign mm. to induce panic in the population. Okay, now, may I offer, a moment ago I tried to defend public health officials. Now I would like to launch an entirely new line of attack on economists. One that has not occurred to you, as far as I know, and I'm wondering whether it's because you're naive or whether it's because I'm so cynical. But here it goes. This will take a moment to set it up. March 2020, that's just as the nation is being locked down. It's the same month in which you published your piece. The New Yorker magazine published a review of a new book by two Princeton economists, and the book was titled The Deaths of Despair and the future of capitalism. 
the central finding was that unemployment leads to an array of pathologies, just as you talked about, drug abuse, depression, alcoholism, and so forth, cutting short people's lives. Headline of the review, why Americans are dying from despair. The subhead, the unfairness of our economy can be measured not only in dollars, but in deaths, close quote. In other words, as the economy is being locked down, the New Yorker publishes a review of a book that makes it very clear that economists do understand the correlation between, and in fact, even every single, every percentage increase in unemployment suggests an increase in this, this much alcoholism, this much, it's all really well understood. And then the lockdown comes and the whole argument about deaths of despair among economists just disappears. As long as the argument is useful to attack capitalism and free markets, we will trumpet the argument in the New Yorker. But if the argument could be used to raise questions about the lockdown, down the memory hole. So I am saying that this little layman looks at that and says, there is something really ideological going on here. The economists didn't count because they didn't want to know the numbers. I suspect. Now, you are entirely free to say that I am full of low suspicions that I should dismiss immediately. But how do you respond? I mean, I, do, I, it, I don't know in that particular case. I mean, I, I, that I, book, those, those economists, those, okay. I, mean, we, I, we I have those, a lot of, actually, a lot of respect for those economists. So I just, but, I, but I will say this, that uh, the professed ideals that many, many people have, concern for the poor, concern for the working class, uh, concern for children, as best I can tell, that concern was lip service as soon as the fear of COVID hit. All of those ideals that we have professed it's not, and it's not just economists. I think very, very large numbers of people uh, have have essentially forgotten about those ideals. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not a cynical kind of person. I, I tend to. I am. I'll handle that for for both <laughs> of us. I mean, I don't want to think that they don't hold those ideals. What in my view, much of it is the fear of COVID essentially gripped. I mean, I think there's parts of our brain that are almost evolved for this primal panic around infectious disease. And you know, we, we lived in a society for, for, for uh, decades where infectious disease has been conquered. And you have this So you're saying thing. we spent the last 18 months living on our reptile brains and it's time for the frontal cortex to reassert itself. Yeah, I, th I think people really do still have those values right. and, and they just need to recall themselves. That's the last 18 months. Let me ask you. Now, this, is, this really is a layman. This is me getting to ask a guy who actually knows stuff questions that I have and that friends have. Where we stand now, state-by-state state evidence on whether the lockdowns worked, where they worked, where they didn't work. Florida, broadly speaking, it imposed limited lockdowns and then lifted them as quickly as possible. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, whom you have advised, just did not like lockdowns and was very dubious for, uh, as far as I can tell, he subscribes to the arguments you've made here that they do more harm than good. California, which has imposed some of the, which imposed and continues in various counties to impose restrictions, mandates, and so forth. Where did more people die? Where was it worst? So what, what do we, what do we, what we hear, here are two different models. Which one was better?
Right. So uh, Florida is one of the oldest na uh, states in the nation. California, one of the youngest. So you, you can't directly compare deaths because that, as we said... They had more old people in yeah, Florida. Yeah, so you would expect there to be more deaths <clears throat> in Florida. Right. Simply because there's more old, old people. So, But once you adjust for that fact, once you say, okay, well, let's look at uh, people who are over 85, for instance. Well, there's fewer 85-year-olds per capita that died in Florida than in California. Well, what about 75 to 84? Fewer old people, 75 to 84, per capita that died in Florida than in California. What about 65 to 74? Well, the same thing. Fewer deaths in Florida than in California. Um, the, there's a, 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 a for, for the young people, you know, Florida's been through four different waves and California three, but through those, those waves. Is there a fourth wave coming to California? Probably. Okay. Yeah. So, and the, the, in other words, it's purely seasonal. Yeah, it seems seasonal. All right. Uh, so, uh, slightly more young people have died in Florida than, than, old, uh, than, than in California, but it's almost equal. And so if you do an age-adjusted death rate, for Florida through uh, using CDC data through September 21 of this year, what I found was that they're almost exactly equal. The outcome as far as COVID goes, Florida and California are almost exactly equal. So the disease had its way in both states, but California tormented its citizens in a way that Florida did not. California is second to last in the number of days of school for kids last year. Okay. By the way, that's, I should be, I should, say that's public school kids. Public school kids were out of school in California. Private school kids, many of them actually got to go to school. Right. Florida, 100% open for kids to go to school in person all of last year. All right. Vaccinations, you're for them or against them? Uh, I think vaccines are the probably the most important and, and effective medical invention ever. I think they're great. Um, so what do you say to people? So, so, so this is where there's a kind of, there's a subtext that you're sticking up for, for liberty. You trust individuals, but you really don't have any patience. You have no more patience than Anthony Fauci or Joe Biden for unvaccinated Americans. Is that correct? I, I, uh, you're asking about the COVID vaccines or, or vaccines in general? No, 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 the COVID vaccines. Yeah, so, so COVID vaccines in particular are, are, are extremely effective at protecting against severe disease. And I think that if you had a public health that was trustworthy, that the people in the country public trusted. Health, the, the authority or establishment, right. Okay. Exactly. Um, you would have much broader uptake of the vaccines and, and, uh, than, than we've seen. We've seen actually pretty broad uptake of the vaccines, especially in the older population, but not universal. And the reason is because significant chunks of the population, African-Americans, uh, some, some uh, poor, poor white communities, don't trust public health. And for good reason, apparently. And for good reason. I mean, I think public health has failed the United States and failed the world. All right. So briefly, what would you say to someone who's still... Honestly, there may be viewers who won't take it from Anthony Fauci, but might take it from Jay Bhattacharya. What would you say to someone who still hasn't gotten vaccinated? I mean, I mean, I think that for, for someone who's older, especially, the vaccine is incredibly important. COVID is a very deadly disease, as we talked about for people who's older. And the vaccine, while they're not, we haven't seen, it's only been in human use for 10 months, right? So it's, we don't know all of the side effects. We've seen enough to know it's pretty safe. And we do know, so it doesn't prevent the disease, you can still get COVID, 
but you're much less likely to suffer severely or go to the hospital, correct? That's correct. Anybody's experience in particular you care to mention? <laughs> All right, Peter, I, I had COVID. I, you know, I, when after I, you got the vaccine? After, so I had the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine in April, and I got COVID in, in August. And you later. went to bed for a few days. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, it was, it no hospital. Thing. No hospital. No. Did you go to the doc? I didn't die. I wasn't. You know that kind of. Well, nothing you are a doctor, so maybe you don't need to. Go I, to <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, so. The vaccine is quite effective for that. Uh, so I would I would recommend getting it if you're especially if you're older. Uh, if you're if you're uh, worried about it, I'd say find a doctor you trust and talk to them about it. I, I think the the coercion that we've used to try to get everyone vaccinated is misguided for several reasons. A couple of reasons. One is, as you said, Peter, it doesn't stop disease spread. You can still get infected. Well, that means the vaccine, unlike many other vaccines which do stop disease spread, they protect protect me, but it doesn't protect you. Right. And so many people already have the disease, they recovered from it. Why force them to get it when they're already pretty well protected against the disease? Right. So here's what Joe Biden said announcing his mandate. Here's the federal mandate announced last month. Still hasn't been put into effect as I understand it, but here's the federal mandate announced last month. The mandate will require all employers with over 100 employees to force employees either to be vaccinated or to show a negative COVID test each week. Vaccines will be mandated for all federal workers and contractors with no testing option. And by the way, that includes every major airline in the country, which is one reason we saw airline disruptions this past week. President Biden addressing Americans addressing in particular the unvaccinated. Quote, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. Your refusal has cost all of us, close quote. Is that the right way to speak to unvaccinated Americans? It's not the way to speak to Americans at all. He's not, I mean, that is terrible public health messaging, right? You do not talk down to people. You treat them like equals. You treat them like intelligent people and you give them information and you trust them to make good choices. That's how you convince people to do this. Um, this vaccine mandate is, is, is already created all kinds of disruptions. We, you know, we worried about, about not having enough uh, beds, hospital beds. Well, many, many nurses are, gonna, are essentially quitting work. You know, I think it was like 70,000 in New York State alone. We're gonna have shortages of hospital supplies. Uh, there's a, there's a, in part of the mandate is, is that every military officer has, military member has to get it. Right. Ten, tens of thousands of military officers are gonna quit, or t military personnel are gonna quit, rather than get the vaccine, or be fired, right? We're, we're gonna have dis like disruptions on a major scale, and it's a failure of public health messaging. It's not even necessary, right? The disease is not going to stop spreading if 90% are vaccinated. The, the, the vaccine does not stop disease. You've seen in Israel, for instance, a very highly vaccinated population with a COVID vaccine, huge increases in cases. Iceland, uh, the vaccine is not the key to, the, to ending this disease. The vaccine is the key to protecting the vulnerable, mm -hmm. for sure, but not the key to ending the disease. Let's play a clip. I quoted Dr. I quoted President Biden. Let's play a brief clip from Dr. Fauci. Indeed, you do have personal liberties for yourself, and you should be in control of that. But you are a member of society, and as a member of society reaping all the benefits of being a member of society, you have a responsibility to society. And I think each of us, particularly in the context of a pandemic that's killing millions of people, you have got to look at it and say, there comes a time 
when you do have to give up what you consider your individual right of making your own decision for the greater good of society. So that's the underlying argument in all of this. Locking down, mandating vaccinations. What do you make of the argument? I think generally coercion is a poor tactic in public health. It breeds distrust and ultimately uh, undermines itself in terms of effectiveness. I think part of the reason why large chunks of the population, or some chunks of the population have said, I'm not going to get the vaccine, is because they don't trust public health, because the lockdowns were promised to stop the disease from spreading and it didn't work. Right. Uh, this kind of coercion is very tempting in public health, and, and yet whenever it occurs, it, you, may, you may achieve some short-term goal. You may get vaccination rates up, to, to some, but you, you end up with harms in the long run. Right, so uh, I, I've had people write to me and tell me that they don't trust this vaccine, and now they, while they used to trust the childhood vaccines, which are really effective, they're not going to—they're going to start Polio, looking into measles that. and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I think right. the trust in public health is an invaluable resource, and it's been squandered by 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 uh, the, these kinds of That's attitudes. That's a school mom, not a scientist. Yeah, well, certainly not a public health official. All right, schools. In Florida, Governor DeSantis has imposed a ban on mask mandates for school children, meaning school, local school boards don't get to require children to wear masks. And Texas Governor Abbott issued a, an executive order banning mask mandates in schools, again saying schools don't get to require children to wear masks. Now, it turns out that in both of those, there's so many legal challenges that I honestly haven't been able to work out quite what the state of play is now. I think that the ban on mask mandates of Governor DeSantis is in effect in Florida, but for at least the time being, Governor Abbott's has been removed in Texas. Okay, that's the state of play as best I can work it out from an open letter by Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Quote, governors trying to score ideological points by banning mask mandates and bullying school leaders for implementing safety protocols are stoking hostile and unsafe climates, close quote. Jay? Yeah, so I think, uh, so actually just one quick thing. Um, the the uh, mask policies are that you, if you, you can, there's the, 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 the counties or schools can adopt them, require them, but then they have to allow parents to opt out. That's in Florida or in yeah, both cases? Yeah, it's in cases? Florida. I, I'm not actually 100% sure about the Texas. Right. Um, <laughs> in any case, um, the, the point is that the, the in Florida and many other places, they want the, the they want to give parents some say in whether ch children are masked. So let me just talk very quickly yes. about about what the state of the scientific evidence is. And I'll just I'll give you it in a very very simple way. In Europe, the European CDC says that masking kids under 12 is not recommended. In the United States, the U.S. CDC says that masking kids two and up, toddlers and up, is is is, is required. Um, the, the, the science is not settled on masks, and it's very simple. We don't have good data on it. We do not have randomized evidence. Why not? It's been 18 months. The CDC is funded to the extent of billions of dollars. Why haven't they tested masks? It's a really good question. I wish I knew the answer. We should have had randomized evidence on this already. It's divisive because we don't have good evidence on it. Hmm. All right. Jay, last question. Last question. I'm going to quote the journalist and author John Tierney, just to quote, just to indicate that you're not entirely alone. John Tierney writing in the City Journal, quote, we still have no convincing evidence 
that the lockdown saved lives, but lots of evidence that they have already cost lives and will prove deadlier in the long run than the virus itself." Close quote. Jay Bhattacharya, how can we ensure that no such thing ever happens again? I mean, I, th I think the first thing that has to happen is that public health should apologize. The, the, the public health establishment in the United States and the world has failed the public. Uh, I, I think th we should acknowledge the, the incredibly unequal harms of the lockdown and uh, essentially make... Rich people did fine and poor people were just yeah. tossed to the virus. Isn't that roughly what uh, happened yeah, here? I, I, the, the funny thing about the Great Barrington Declaration is that it's not a new idea. This is the same Focus plan. protection. Yes, yeah, the same plan we used it for a hundred years of, of, of epidemics and pandemics. The principles are protect the vulnerable, don't disrupt society as little as possible. The, our public health agencies should make a public commitment to adopt those, those kinds of principles again. Uh, even in the face of, of, of many, many different kinds of challenges, those are going to prove, as principles, going to prove much more effective at protecting the public than the kinds of principles that we've adopted now, which essentially is let's eradicate the virus at all costs. I said that was the last question I lied. Here's the last question. You'd like a, quite a dramatic change in the public health establishment. You'd like them to change their minds. It wouldn't bother you if there were an apology. How does that kind of change happen in this society? One presidential election? Two presidential elections? Or is it like the old joke about, what was it, John Maynard Keynes said that progress is made in economics one death at a time. You just have to, that the, the, the Fauci's of this world are so bought into what they have done that you have to wait for an entire generational turnover. How can what you hope to see happen, happen? I mean, I think ultimately public health is a political science in, in, in the following sense, right? So no public health uh, measure is taken in and of itself by public health. It's a political decision whether to allow public health to adopt it or not, or implement it or not. It, what happened during this pandemic is that many, many politicians outsourced their responsibility to the public to public health people. Including because, Donald Trump. Including Donald Trump. And uh, the consequence of that is that the, the, the normal checks that would allow you to say, well, the, the, the politician made a good choice or not, have been off, offloaded to a set of people who have no checks at all. Uh, Politicians are used to balancing competing interests. It's the correct. nature of their work. Public health officials are not. Right. Um, they're focused on, as you saw with Dr. Fauci, a single thing, which is infection control. But society flourishes when it has many goals, a plural set of goals, not a single goal. Um, and so I think the... the uh, the idea that our, our entire social life can be uh, upended by, by essentially a, a relatively narrow set of scientists, a narrow set of public health people, that has to, we have to build protections against that clearly in our political systems. Uh, how exactly that would work out, I'm not, I'm not uh, that's a little bit, you know, that's beyond my expertise, frankly. But it's very clear that we need something like that in place. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.